All right. Good morning. Again, it's good to be back up here and sharing with you again. Uh, we are on a push now to complete uh, 1 Corinthians uh, by about Thanksgiving. And uh, so, uh, I'm sure, again, some of you are probably anxious for that to be, we be done with this 1 Corinthians stuff. But uh, others of you maybe, have, you just haven't got enough yet. I don't know. But uh, I know... It's uh, been an adventure to go through, and, and uh, this morning I find myself this week as I was prepping, uh, uh, I, I just kind of normally for me in, in preaching and my philosophy of preaching is, is I, uh, I, 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 I tend to leave a lot of what I do in preparation for the message basically on my couch at home, because that's where I usually prep. But uh, I, I leave it there. In other words, the, the exegesis that I do and, and the diving into the Scripture and figuring out what it means and what it says and all that kind of stuff, I leave a lot of that. And I know other preachers have different styles, and they will bring it into the pulpit, and they'll share with you kind of that journey they've been on for why they've come to the conclusions they've come to. And, and I, I just, uh, again, philosophically, I, I just don't do that. Uh, and I feel like I want to spend most of my time focusing on, okay, what does this mean for us? Uh, and really zeroing in on those pieces and the application piece of that and, and, and actually see, uh, dri- driving for some inspiration for us to be able to live this out in our life instead of getting hung up on the uh, kind of the gory details. However, this morning and this week as I was prepping, I felt like the Lord said, no, we need, we're going to dive in a little bit to these gory details. And so uh, if you prefer the inspirational, uh, the kind of practical, like, you know, just what is this about part uh, of my preaching, then I'm sorry, you'll get that a little bit at the end, but it's mostly not going to be that. Uh, if you are one who's always like, Sean, how did you get there? Would you please tell me? Uh, well, today's your, today's your day. So... Uh, the reality is uh, the Bible is a curious thing. It, it is a, a difficult thing for us to understand, I think, rightly. But at the same time, it's simple. It, it just simply takes us opening the thing up and reading it, and we can understand it. We, we can glean amazing truths from it. Uh, James chapter 1 talks about the fact that we shouldn't just look at or read the Bible or hear the Bible. In their culture, it was always read. So don't just hear the Word of God and then walk away and don't let it change you. He he says, no, 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 this should change you. When you hear it uh, uh, read, when you read it, it's, it's like a mirror, James says, to expose our sin, to expose who we really are. But also, it's an opportunity for us to get to know who God is. And so this book is, is simple and easy to understand, but also it's difficult, and it's a mystery, and it's a challenge to understand. And, and so uh, we have a thing called hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics, which is the, basically the name for the process that scholars go through, and actually all of us do it every time we read the Bible. But it's uh, generally scholars talk about and use the word hermeneutics mostly. But it's a process that we go through to read and understand and apply the Bible to our life. 
And so this morning, I want to go through some of those kind of key principles before we get into the passage. And then I want to use those key principles in the passage so that we can see what's going on here and help us to understand what's happening. And, and maybe it'd be an encouragement for you if you are struggle sometimes to read Scripture and really understand what certain verses say and, and, or how do certain scholars get to the conclusions that they get to. Maybe some of that will be uh, highlighted this morning. The, Bible, the, re, the, re, the reality is, is that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. So Moses, when he wrote the five books of the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament, also called the Pentateuch, or also called the Torah, also called the Law, when he wrote those things, he wasn't writing it to a 21st century church. He was writing it to his people at that time. The Bible is written by specific people, real people, at a specific time, in a specific culture, for a specific reason. The Bible is not just God's commands to us. It's not God just saying, okay, let me just give you all the highlights of the important things and how to live your life. The Bible is story. It's history. But it's story. It's his story. And it's laid out through centuries of time. And so we need to understand that when we approach the Bible. When we open up the Bible to spend some time reading it, we need to remember that although this book is for us, it's not written to us. That means we need to understand, and this is the first rule of exegesis. First rule of understanding Scripture is to understand what the passage meant to the original author and to the original audience. This is where truth lies. We cannot simply look at it as a poem, like many of us do today in our colleges. Uh, This is how it's taught. Just read a poem and then go, boy, what does that mean to me? Oh, you know, it makes me feel this way, or it brings up memories of this. And so I think this is what this poem is about. Now, there certainly is poetry in Scripture, but for us to think that we can approach Scripture simply through our own interaction with it and think that's enough is dangerous at best. Instead, we need to recognize, again, this was not written to us, and so we need to understand what it meant to the original author when he wrote it, and what did it mean to the original audience when they read it. The way that we get there today, because we're at least 2,000 years removed from the specific people, the specific time, the specific culture, and the specific reason why these passages were written, because we're at least 2,000 years removed, we need to have some tools to help us to understand what the original author meant and what the original author or audience understood. And we have historical, we have cultural, and we have textual context that helps us to understand that. If we can figure out what was going on at the time in history, and thankfully we have amazing tools to be able to do that, resources that help us to understand especially what was going on 2,000 years ago. Cultural things, what was happening in the culture, right? I mean, our culture is very different than 2,000 years ago. Although, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, we've noted that it's amazing how similar our culture is to the Corinthian church's culture. Over and over again, we're going, wow, we're kind of dealing with the same stuff here. 
And so there's some connections, but it's still different. And so we need to understand what the cultural differences are. And textual context. We need to know where does this passage lie in the whole story of Scripture, but also within the book that it's written, within the paragraph that this verse is written. What is the context? What is happening there? These are tools that we use. The next step of hermeneutics, so the first step is exegesis, trying to figure out what did it mean to the original author and the audience. The second part is what we would call contextualization or interpretation or application. So how do we then, once we figure out what it mean, meant to the original author, how do, what does it mean now to me? How, does I, how do I apply this now to my life? Uh, and there's a couple of things that we need to consider there. And, and, and huge within this is the occasion for writing. And some would put this back in ex- exegesis. But the reason that the author is writing what he's writing has a huge impact on how we apply that passage to our life. If he is writing uh, uh, for a, a specific, if he's writing poetry, then, and, and that's the purpose, is to be, this is a worship song, should we take that poetry to, 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 to be literal, right? What is the nature of poetry? Poetry is supposed to be symbolic. It's supposed to oftentimes is, you know, images that the, that the author is trying to bring out. And so you don't want to bring, you know, a hard line kind of, this is exactly how God is when you're reading a, a poem about God because it's meant to be symbolic, right? And so we have to understand the occasion for why writing. Why is the author writing it? And then as we are applying or contextualizing the passage, we need to think about what is universal about this passage. In other words, what are the things that, uh, that this author wrote that are applicable for all times in all ages in all cultures? So what is universal? But also, what is cultural? What was actually just an instruction for that particular culture at that time? Now, this is the heated battle part of uh, of Bible study today is the cultural aspect of it. We hear a lot about how, you know, we just, uh, you know, everything sometimes in Scripture seems to be cultural, and so we can just throw out uh, masses of Scripture and passages of Scripture, just throw them out, because, well, that's just all cultural, and so we're not even going to pay attention to that. We have on the other side where there's nothing that's cultural, and so everything is going to be taken very literally, and so if it's in there, then that means it's got to be instructive for us today. Really, there's a middle ground which recognizes that there are things that are universal in Scripture and there are things that are cultural. But all of it has something to say to us today. So in other words, even the cultural things, although we may not be able to take a a direct application from their culture to our culture, there is a principle within that message that does carry over, and we'll get into that today in the passage that we're in to kind of give illustration of that. The final thing in this preparation for getting into this passage I wanted to say was this, is that, and it's going to kind of phrase that maybe it, it helps us to understand, just because it is described in Scripture doesn't mean that it's prescribed. In other words, just because the Bible r- describes something that happened doesn't mean that it's supposed to happen all the time. Okay, And, and it's an important thing to keep in mind as well as we are reading scripture sometimes you know there's just there's passages that you know i mean uh, uh, greet each other with a holy kiss this is a cultural perspective right 
It's describing how you're to greet Paul. How are you to greet one another? You should greet each other with kissing, right? You know, this is a holy kiss thing, right? I mean, you can just have a, a lot of debate about what is a holy kiss, but we recognize pretty easily, and we don't practice it generally in our churches today, because we recognize it's a cultural thing. And even though it's described, it's not prescribed. So it's a cultural; it's not an ultimate. Uh, or universal, excuse me. All right, so let's get into the passage. Let me read the passage uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a, rev- a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done to build for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So I coached uh, basketball. Um, many of you guys know that I uh, spent some time coaching. Uh, in my previous position up in Richland, I had opportunity to coach in middle school. So I did football, baseball, and basketball. But in basketball, I, basketball was an interesting sport to coach. I love basketball, just like I love football, but I love football more. So anyway, uh, but basketball was a great sport, and it was a fun one to coach. Uh, but I coached B-level basketball, so I don't know if you've had kids in A or B-level middle school basketball or not, and maybe they do things different here in California. Everything seems to be different in California, so I don't know. But anyway, uh, B-level was like that kind of the, you know, the ones that didn't make the A-team. The really good ones, they would have you know, 12 guys that made the A-team, and then their left were left for me. And we usually had like five or six teams, and I just got one of those teams, right? And we had a bunch of other coaches. And so uh, so the, the B-level basketball you always had you know three or four guys that were pretty good and they were kind of bubble guys they could have maybe played on on a if they were just a little bit better and then you had a whole bunch usually of you know guys that you know thanks for showing up it's great it's great you know I mean uh maybe debate club would be good for you or you know I don't know so uh but anyway so with basketball there were there were three things with all of my teams that I always focused on that, that these were the most important things in, for me in, in the way I coached and the things that I thought were really important in, in, in getting these B uh, players to play well and for us to be uh, effective and and successful as a basketball team first was uh, number one was hustle I demanded that they would hustle Amen. exactly that <laughs> 
there was no jogging and just kind of walking up and down the court. No, no, no. We were always hustling. In practice, we hustled. On the floor, when we were in the game, we were hustling. We were going to get the ball. If the ball was loose, we were going to get it, right? Because we are going to out-hustle the other team. So hustle. Second was they had to see the ball. Uh, B kids had a, a they had a problem with it, but anyway. But every every team needs to do this. They need to know where the ball is when you're on the court. You got to know where the ball is at all times. But especially on defense, you got to know where the ball is, right? And so, see the ball was the second thing. The third thing was that they needed to pass and cut on offense. So they, they needed to pass the ball, and then they needed to cut to the hole and look for you know a give and go pass. Right? This is just these are the three things that every one of my teams I would teach them. Okay, and the, and I would highlight them over and over again. This was really important. However, there were some other things that I coached certain teams and based on their abilities. You know, because they would come in and first day it's always kind of fun, and you know I like to get them running a lot, and so they start complaining and stuff. And it, actually, you know, middle school kids, if you get them to run it out. They're so much more easy to manage, right? I mean, so, so I would run them, run them, run them, you know, and they'd start complaining about running. I'm like, oh, sorry, man, this is what we got to do to play basketball. And anyway, then I could coach them. But uh, so some, though, teams, you know, after I, a week or so, I began to understand the strengths and the weaknesses of this particular team because every team was a little bit different. And so there were teams that I forbade to shoot three-pointers. And trust me, every middle schooler wants to shoot them. But there were some teams that, you know, we could shoot three-pointers because we could maybe make them. There was others that was like, seriously, I mean, that is not even going to make it to the hoop. Or if it does, it's going to clank off the iron. It's just, so there were a couple of teams that I said, you cannot shoot a three-point shot. If you shoot a three-point shot in a game or in practice, you will be running more. <laughs> yes, because you're obviously not tired enough to listen to me, right? Anyway. <laughs> There were other teams, however, that I would make pass the ball like four times before they could shoot, right? Because they were just ball hogs, and they would come down, and the first, you know, you just drive to the hole, right? You know, and every time, like, no, no, we need work our offense, you know? And so they would, we'd make them pass the ball four times before somebody could shoot, right? There were other teams that I said, you can't fast break. There is no fast break. They couldn't dribble the ball very well. They would just turn it over. Please, no fast break. I know it's wide open. I know there's no one in front of you, but just stop, okay? Just hold the ball and then slowly come down the court, right? So, but this is applicable, I think, to biblical interpretation. (laughs) Believe it or not. Because the reality is, when we're reading Scripture, and when we're reading Paul, this passage here before us, there's pieces in this where Paul is outlining the things that are essential. The things that, you know, the the hustle piece, the see the ball piece. He's he's saying, this is is something that every team that I'm going to coach is going to do. These are the things that everybody has to be, this should be a part of every worship service. And then there's other pieces that are simply based on that particular team. There's, there's certain segments that are like, you know what, you know, this is not for everybody, but for this particular team, no, we're not shooting three-pointers, or no, we're not doing this particular activity on a Sunday. See, the reality is, is we, imagine if you came into one of my basketball practices, maybe about three weeks into the season, and you had never seen basketball played before. You had no idea what the sport was about. You just showed up one day in practice. 
And then you watch for the two-hour practice as I coach these guys up. And you would get the idea, oh, man, he's really concerned about hustle. Look at him going. Oh, man, he said, see the ball, see the ball a bunch of times. And then, oh, man, these guys, they shoot three-pointers. And he's like, nope, can't do that. Oh, that must be against the rules, right? What would your perception be as an outsider coming into a game and having no idea? Right? We, we, we would get an idea. We would think that this is how the game is. Everything is important. That all of this is, is, in, is an essential piece of the game. When in reality, those who know the game know that, actually, you know, shooting three points is actually a good strategy if you have the guys that can do it and, and, and it's set up in the plays that you're, you're trying to accomplish to win the game. And it's the same with Scripture. When we come to Scripture, we're outsiders. We oftentimes don't know what was going on in the culture. We don't know what was going on historically. We don't even know sometimes for sure what Paul is even talking about. And yet we read it, and sometimes we can go, well, it all must be true. It all must be essential. It all, we just try, you know, and we just take it all in without going, wait a second, what is going on? And this is the job of the interpreter. This is the job that we face as we go to Scripture, that we would use historical context when we can know it, cultural context when we can know it, textual context when we can know it, and the occasion for writing when we can know it. Because that helps us to know what are the essential things in here and what are the things that aren't so essential. So I've gone a long ways and haven't even talked about the passage yet. So we'll skim through the passage as much as possible while also dealing with these issues that uh, I talked about. So in 1 Corinthians 14, we see there's some easy principles or things to draw out to understand. It's clear, okay? It's, and it often is. It's not hard to figure out what the Bible is saying, right? What's hard to understand is how do we apply it? That's the challenge, right? Uh, or understanding what's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. And so, so we see that Paul is saying that everyone should contribute in worship. We see that all of worship should be done to build people, everybody up. We see that there's a max of three tongues speakers with interpretation. We see that there should be two or three prophets that speak. And we see that women should remain silent in the church and worship should be done orderly. These are the things that are clear from this passage that I just read to you. These are, this is what he says. So now the question is, what does it mean? First of all, understanding historical context. And I'm not going to dive into all the depth of this, but I just want to say, first of all, we need to understand, historically, this is a brand new worship experience. The Jews, and there weren't many Jews in the Corinthian church, but the Jewish experience of worship was the sacrificial system. The feasts, right? So this kind of worship is foreign to even the Jewish religion, right? And what they had grown up with. And so, uh, so they have no context. If you look at the Gentiles and how they worshiped, the pagan religions and their, their worship was, was crazy and chaotic. And so Paul is writing to a culture and a, and a historical time where we are, he's developing the church. He's trying to say, this is the, this, there's a whole new way to worship God, and this is how we do it. And these are, here's some things that you need to be worried about and concerned about. Again, the cultural context is that, again, pagan practices and perspectives were actually working their way and were involved in the Corinthian worship service. We see this over and over again in his passage. He's talking about this uh, in chapter 11. We see it in chapter 12. We see it here in chapter 14, where there's these cultural influences from the pagan religions that are impacting the way they're doing worship in their service. It's also important to note culturally that, again, women 
in this culture, Roman culture, pagan culture, women always seem to have more freedoms religiously than they did culturally in the political world. And so we have seen, and there's evidences of many different pagan religions where women are kind of running everything and they're in control of everything. And, and, and it's, there's this chaotic worship experience. So we need to remember that. This is what Paul is writing to, the historical factors, the cultural factors that he's dealing with. And then the textual context. Again, where does this passage lie? He's just spent some time talking about the divisions that are happening in worship, coming to the table for communion, and and they were divided over it because some were rich and were eating these huge feasts, and the poor were over here, and they weren't getting anything, and so there's this chaos going on there. There's this individualistic perspective of worship. Actually, at the beginning of this chapter, we see some of that, where they're all focused on on giving my, you know, getting glorification for themselves. There's also, what has the teaching been so far? So far, Paul has been teaching certain things like communion should be united. That we should all come together. That if, we need, if we're hungry, we should eat before we get there so that there's not this crazy you know, class thing going on in communion. That we're all one at the table. That we would all be, that we all, he also teaches that we should all be, that we all are gifted and we all are valuable. Chapter 12. And the love is the most important thing. Chapter 13, we just got done with that. It says, above all, you know, this is the, this is the most important thing is love. And then, of course, that last, and again, two, a few weeks ago when I preached, focusing on God and worship. So how do we contextualize this passage? What does it mean for us? What is the universal pieces? What are the cultural pieces? First of all, the occasion for writing, understand again that Paul here is not writing a book on ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is the study of the church. Okay? So he's not writing a book on ecclesiology. He's not saying, okay, this is how the church should function always and everywhere for all time. That's not the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book is to address certain issues that are going on in the Corinthian church in their worship. And he's addressing those specific issues. He's writing to correct the wrong perspectives and the wrong practices that are happening in their worship services. He's, he's writing to confront their arrogance and their abuses. Understand that this is one of the harshest letters that Paul ever wrote. He is over and over again correcting them because they are so messed up in how they are worshiping and coming together and functioning as a church. And so that is the context that he's writing. They wrote a letter to him and asked him questions. He responded back. As your letter said, hey, I want to... He's, he's letting them know. He's, he's dealing with those issues. So what can be backed of those things that I listed? Easy to understand. Everyone contributes to worship. All done building up. Max three tongue speakers with interpretation. Two or three prophets speak. Women remain silent. Uh, worship should be done orderly. So which of those can be backed up by Scripture. Which ones of those are universal? Which one of those seem to have a bigger uh, 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 application than just for His church? What is universal is the question. First of all, I think everyone being involved is certainly part of what worship is supposed to be. And we see that not just because Paul writes it here, but because he writes about it in chapter 12. And also we see in Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, a different church that he's writing to, he writes similar things, that all people have a song to bring, all people have a hymn to offer, all people, that we're all doing this together. 
We also can say, take as a universal truth that all is done to build up, that the worship service is about edification. We again looked at that a couple of weeks ago, the edification of worship. But he also mentions it in chapter 12, uh, and, he, and he also, Paul writes this to 1 Thessalonians 5.11, where he says it's kind of similar thing, that it's all about uh, all of us coming together to edify one another, to serve one another, to care for one another. How about worship done orderly? That is also a universal truth. Chapter 11, he talks about it. And then again in Colossians chapter 2, we see this sense of order of things and the way it should be. So we're understanding that these are universal truths, not simply because it's written in this passage, but because there's other passages that make us understand that this is probably universal because it's not just been written to the Corinthians. It's also been written to other churches. Prophecy is another one. Earlier in the chapter, he deals with prophecy, but we see in, this, in essence, Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is another verse, and it talks about how the disciples devoted, or the, the Christians, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Apostles' teaching, right? There's this prophetic idea that, you know, we're still pro- proclaiming God's truth. And so those four areas, I think, are all uh, areas that we can uh, firmly say this is a universal truth for all churches for all time that we should encourage our churches to do all of these things. What is questionable, though, are, first of all, uh, tongues interpretations. So chapter 12, it, it talks about it, it, tongues interpretation being a gift, a gift. But the problem is nowhere in Scripture, else in Scripture, other than here, does Paul deal with interpretation of tongues. In the context, uh, it, it, certainly in the context of building up, we have an interpretation of tongues so that it can build up the church. That's why we have the interpretation. But to really understand fully the interpretation piece, it's kind of hard to know what that looks like universally because it's only mentioned here. Number of tongues and number of prophets. So he says you should have two or three tongue speakers and you should have or three max tongue speakers and two or three prophets. So is that number, is that number universal? Should we every Sunday have to have two or three prophets? Two or three tongue speakers? Is that, is that? No. You know, why? Because, again, this seems to be arbitrary. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see someone give or Paul give numbers to who's going to be uh, who's speaking in tongues or prophets. So, but there are principles here. Even though there's not a number, you know, we can't really look at the numbers, there is a principle that we can draw from this. And the principle simply is this, that it's actually okay to put limitations on a worship service. You know, some get critical of church services today because we only go an hour, an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 45 today, who knows? Anyway, um, but because, oh, you guys, if you guys were more holy, you would just go all day long, right, kind of thing. And this is the way we used to do it back in the old days. But there's, it's okay, biblically, to put limitations on who speaks, how many people speak, and how long a service goes, or any other thing. It's okay to have limitations. And this is a principle that we can draw through, even though, the numbers are cultural that are specific to this particular church. The principle is something we can take through. Now, the big one, of course, you're all going, well, what about women being silent? Let's get there. <laughs> so uh, I, I've kind of set this aside because this one is, I think, an important one to understand more fully because this, these two verses, verses 34 and 35, are very interesting in a lot of ways because they're so they're just, they're, they're oddballs. They're just weird things. And I'll explain what I mean. First of all, there's question among scholars whether Paul even wrote those two verses, verses 34 and 35. And the reason there's question is uh, several. There's three reasons. One, 
The location in some of the manuscripts, as you know, the Bible, we have a bunch of manuscripts of, of the New Testament, all right? A lot of different copies of it, all right? And there's a lot of different people who scribe to those things. Well, some of the manuscripts that we have actually have verses 34 and 35 after verse 40. So why the mix in order is one of the questions we have to ask. And so the thought is that perhaps this was a scribe who felt like, oh, we need to add a little piece here to worship. And so he wrote those two verses. Okay. The second reason we question, or some scholars question the authorship, is this peculiar terminology that is used. In there, it says, the church of the saints is the phrase that's used in verse 34. And the thing is, is Paul never refers to the church, church of the saints, in any other letter that he wrote. It's always the church of God or the church of Christ. And so, again, scholars go, church of the saint, where does this come from? We've got all the other letters that he's written. He always uses church of God, always uses church of Christ, and now we have church of saints. And so they, again, scholars go, hmm, maybe did he even write this? Maybe, maybe not. And then finally, the reason that some question his, the authorship is 1 Corinthians 11.5. And we dealt with this a few weeks back, but in that passage, it says that when women pray and prophesy in worship, they should have their heads covered. So why would Paul say in verse chapter, chapter 11 that women are going to pray and prophesy in worship and then three chapters later say that women should be silent in worship because it's a shame for women to speak in a church service. See, there, so there's something going on there. And so, the, again, the question is, is this actually what Paul wrote? Now, of course, some would point quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which also has similar language to these couple of verses here. And we know that, Timothy wrote, or that Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Um, but that's for another day. We'll deal with that passage another time, maybe. But uh, right now, just focusing on this. There's a couple of other concerns with this passage. And the other concerns are, first of all, the sentence structure of verse 34. Uh, if you look at the end of 33, it says, for, or in verse 33, it says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, in the NIV and the ESV, it has a, a period. And then it goes, As in all the churches of the saints, comma, the women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, So, as in all the churches of the saint is connected with women being silent. However, in the older translations, like the NASB and King James Version, the period is in a different place and the comma is in a different place because it connects, as in all the churches of the saints, with for God is not a God of confusion but of peace, comma, as in all the churches of the saints, period. The women should keep silent. So there's, so there's some un misunderstandings here of wh where's the punctuation in this passage, obviously. Okay, and so that's another reason to go, okay, what is going on here? What is this really saying? And then finally, and this is just a quick note, it says uh, in, in verse 34 at the end of it, it says, For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says in my ESV version. The problem with that is Paul, and when we're talking, I said it earlier, the law refers to what? The first five books of the Bible. Okay? So that's what we're referring to. But the problem is, there is no law for women to be silent in the first five books of the Bible. And so what law is he talking about? There may, now, there may be other laws that are going on that he's talking about. Or again, maybe it goes back to authorship. Was this really Paul? 
All right, so these are the problems within this, these, just these two verses. And the reason I point them out is not to make a case for women in, in worship, okay, women in ministry, all that kind of stuff. I did that back in the end of June. I did two messages on it. If you'd like, go back in the archives, pull up that message, and you can read those, listen to those two messages. It gets into the details. But my point is this, is that we cannot make a clear application, universal application, based on these two verses to today. Because there's just so much there that just is confusing and it doesn't make sense. And so uh, at the very best, what we can do is look for maybe a principle that we can apply over into our world today. But we can't make the direct connection between this passage and today saying that women should still be silent in churches today. Instead, this, and this would be my suggestion as a possibility for how we could interpret that, is that, that we today, the principle maybe is this, is that we may need to forbid certain activities in worship because they are a distraction to Christ or to, to what's happening. That's, I think, the principle that we can pull through. Whether that means women being silent or not, I would, I would say probably not, at least not from this passage, we can't make that case. Um, but I think there are times, you know, there's certain music maybe that we shouldn't use in worship, certain styles of worship that it just... For whatever, they just don't fit in a worship service. Or, or they, are, they have too many images in our culture that are negative or are anti-Christian. That to have that kind of music here would be actually a distraction. It's not that that music is all bad. It's that maybe that style, you know, we, we may need to forbid certain things in a worship service in order for the good of the whole church. And that, and that it can be dependent on the church. All right. So, application... I'm just going to briefly say, worship team, why don't you come up? It's 10.30, we'll sing one song and we'll be done. (laughs) Points of application. Three things. I think this passage tells us three things. And these are the things that are universal that I think we can apply for us in our church. First of all, edifying. That our worship service should be edifying. And, And as I said a few weeks ago, it's about our focus on Jesus. If we are focused on Jesus, if all of us are focused on Jesus when we come to worship, we're concerned with Him and glorifying Him, then we, it will be edifying to everyone. Second, it's corporate. All of us are meant to be involved in the worship service. This means that all of us should prepare before we come to church. We should spend time before the Lord in our you know, rooms or in the cars on the way here saying, okay, God, what do you have for me today? Or Lord, what do you want me to contribute today? For us to walk into the room and, and, and to not participate in what's going on, not engage with what's going on. And I'm not even saying, I mean, music, you know, that's where the big one is oftentimes. You have a song you don't like, you don't sing it, right? I'm not, some of you just don't like to sing, period, and that's okay. I'm not saying you have to sing, but we should all be engaged in with everything that's going on. Whether we like the message or we don't like the message, we should be engaged. What is God doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing? And so we have to prepare beforehand, but we also need to be open to the Spirit's movement at the time. I would love for people to come to me and say, Sean, I feel like the Holy Spirit has given me something that needs to be shared in the service today or service sometime in the future. Because God's doing something in my life, or God did this, and He's just convicted me that it needs to go public, and it's not just for me. I think that's how worship should be. I think I should be getting that. I think there should be that interaction between us. Because it's not, the Holy Spirit just doesn't work with me. right? He works with all of us. Finally, it needs to be orderly. It needs to be clear. It needs to be understandable. That we would all be able to participate 
It can't be chaotic. It's not that it's not going to be spirit-led. It's not that it's not going to be sometimes, you know, things are going to happen and it's going to be a little different than normal. But it should be clear and understandable that everyone is able to engage, that everyone is able to recognize what's going on, that everyone is focused on one person at a time or one event at a time or one song at a time or one word at a time. There is something about a group of people all in unison focusing on the same thing at the same moment, the same, singing the same words. And we don't always get that in smaller groups like this, but you go to a life conference where you got 5,000 teens and they're all singing the same song or they're all zeroed in on the same speaker. There is something about that. It is powerful and it releases, I think, the power of the Holy Spirit as well when we're all in unison focused on the same Lord and Savior, Jesus. 